0: Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Hey, listeners. First, I would like to apologize for the delay. There's so much information available on Pendergast, the topic of today's episode, and I had so many sources that I it just took me longer to research and write than I anticipated. Plus, you know, there's this new plague going around. I haven't caught it, um, but I was woefully unprepared for the mental aspects of this disease. I think especially because I don't have it, and I don't know anyone in my family who has it. I mean, we're all healthy. But the panic, as I've been calling it, the mass hysteria over all the unknown factors of this disease that have led people to hoarding supplies and social distancing and uh, self-isolating, it's just, it's been draining. I mean, I'm an introvert. I get my energy from myself. It's not that I'm people shy but I'm not a social butterfly either I just you know I like to hang out with my close friends and family but the fact that I don't even have the option of doing that it's been really really draining mentally emotionally spiritually not to mention all this craziness and stress at work don't even get me started on that um forgive the rant the moral of the story is wash your damn hands with soap and water and if you're sick stay in your ever-loving bed Also, don't call it the Chinese flu or the Wuhan flu, okay? Its name is COVID-19 or coronavirus. Calling it the Chinese flu is just instigating racial prejudice against those of Asian descent, and it's not cool, so don't be a jerk. Alright, stepping off my soapbox, this is it. This is what you all have been waiting for. At least it's what I've been waiting for. When I first dreamed up this podcast a year ago, this guy was the first topic I actually wanted to cover. So here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Mr. Thomas Joseph Pendergast. You may have heard him called T.J. Pendergast, Tom Pendergast, or Boss Tom. I think I called him Tommy Boy in the jazz episode. He would not have liked that at all, but I kind of do, so I'm going to keep calling him Tommy Boy a time or two more. At one time, he was the single most powerful man in Kansas City, as well as one of the most powerful men in the state and even the nation. Alright, so first we need to lay a little groundwork. Uh, Tommy Boy, yes, I really do like that. Tommy Boy was born in St. Joseph, Missouri on July 22nd in 1872. He was the son of Irish immigrants Michael and Mary Pendergast from County Tipperary. He was the youngest of nine children. Which, to my mind, explains a lot of his character. uh, Because the youngest is usually a bit spoiled by the parents, right? And uh, is, shall we say, frequently badgered by their elder siblings. While at the same time seeking to imitate those siblings. At least that's been my observations. He had three brothers, James, John, and Michael, and five sisters. Marianne, Josephine, who went by Josie... Um, I'm not sure if this is pronounced Delia, or Delia, it's D-E-L-I-A, I I would say Delia. Um, But she was also called Bridget, I don't see that connection at all, Um, Margaret, or Maggie, and Catherine, who was also called Katie. Now, Delia and Catherine did die in childhood, I was unable to find a cause of death for them, so if anyone knows, send me a message, I'd be interested in learning what that was. So it totally sucks that they died in childhood, don't get me wrong. But 7 out of 9 is very good odds, especially for this time in history. Um, even though it's almost the 20th century, you know, we really didn't have a good handle on disease and medicine until after World War II. From what little else I can gather about his family and his childhood, they sound like a typical family. His dad was a farmer. At one time he worked for W.H. Whitaker Starch Factory. And it's possible that worked as a drayman. For Russell Majors and Waddell. So Draymond is the guy who's driving the wagon full of goods in the back. And uh, Russell Majors and Waddell was a very large, very wealthy freight company from the Casey area. I expect that many Kansas Cityans will recognize the names. Uh, cause we have some streets, uh, I think, that are named after these guys. Um, even if you don't recognize the company. Um, that will probably be an episode someday. The mom, of course, stayed home and cared for the children. They resided at 1715 Frederick Avenue, again, St. Joseph, Missouri. Um, St. Joe's pretty close to Kansas City. Yeah, I'd say like 30, 40 minutes maybe. Unfortunately, it was demolished after World War II, and the land was purchased by a cemetery monument company, so I wasn't able to go and see it. I was really disappointed. Tommy attended Webster School in St. Joe until he was about 11 or 6th grade. Now, when he was much older, he often claimed that he attended Christian Brothers College, uh, which, despite the name, was actually a high school, um, and also attended St. Mary's College in St. Mary's, Kansas, on a baseball scholarship, even that he turned down a chance at the minors to attend said college. Some sources will simply uh, reiterate his claim while they're summarizing his early years, But a few of my sources actually looked into it, and these schools have no record of his attendance. So this is just his attempt to build up his own reputation. But again, like any young man his age, he worked a number of jobs beginning around age 15. So I don't know what happened between 11 and 15, but I would guess that he was probably helping on the family farm during those years. Now his eldest brother, James... He was born January 27th, 1856. He moved from St. Joe to Kansas City when he was 20 in 1876. So at this time, Tommy would have only been four. Big Jim, that's what James was known by. He moved to the epicenter of Boss Tom's future seat of power in Kansas City and the source of the city's wealth, the West Bottoms. Now, for those of you who have listened to the Stockyards episode, and if you have not, please do so. Um, you'll remember that the stockyards and the meatpacking plants resided in the West Bottoms. This is the 1870s, so although that area is experiencing exponential economic growth, it's super crowded, super dirty, and super smelly. You know what, that doesn't even begin to cover the reality of the West Bottoms at this time. And when I looked back over my notes on the stockyards, I didn't provide a accurate description there as well, so I'm going to give you a brief one here. I'll step back in time for a moment. I'll I'll paint the scene for you. The stockyards abut the Missouri River, and they cover several acres. It's filled with thousands of cattle, sheep, pig, goats, horses, donkeys. The sound of the freight trains coming in and out creates a near-continuous rumble. The men who work there are forced to shout to be heard over the combined cacophony of sound created by the trains and the livestock. The slaughterhouses and the cannon factories are within a block or two. And the little shanty where you live completes this triangle. The land is so low it floods frequently. And the streets are unpaved. There's no sewage system, so the waste of man and beast alike are left in the gutters. This is a breeding ground for disease. Lots of diseases. And this is all to set for the scene for you guys. Because when James, he's actually, he's not really Big Jim just yet. When he first moved to Kansas City, he got a job at a meatpacking plant. Um, That didn't last very long. He became a smelter. Um, A smelter is someone who takes ore and he heats it really high so that it it all melts and he can separate the metals from one another. Um, And so he was a smelter at the A.J. Kelly Foundry. And then he became a puddler at the D.M. Yarbos Keystone Iron Foundry. A puddler was the guy who poured the separated metal, the liquid metal, into molds. So you see how he ended up with the name Big Jim. This guy's basically a blacksmith, and he's buff as hell because of it. However, again, none of this lasted very long, because in 1881, he bought a tavern called the American House. It was located at 1828 St. Louis Avenue. Uh, This was very near the original Union Station. Our current, and it must be said, magnificent edifice wasn't built until 1901. Historians Larson and Holston said that, quote, The blocks around the station contain the heart of the Kansas City's Red Light Tenderloin District, end quote. Uh, Tenderloin here is a reference to another infamous historic neighborhood in San Francisco. So he has prime real estate with everyone coming in for a drink after getting off the train or after a long day of work. Because again, stockyards are right there. Meat plants are right there. Or, you know, even just out for a night on the town down in the Red Light District. And what else do you do at a tavern besides drink? You gamble. Big Jim and later Tom were big supporters of gambling, and American House featured several gaming tables. From what I understand, Jim did enjoy gambling, but not nearly so much as his little brother eventually would. Spoilers. They also described American House as a, quote, two-story combination saloon, boarding house, and hotel, end quote. So, legend says that he owned the American House, or sorry, before he owned the American House, he had bought another tavern named Climax. No, that's not a double entendre. Get your dirty little mind out of the gutter. This supposed tavern was named after a racehorse he had bet on and won, and then those funds were what he bought the tavern with. Um, however, Holston and Larson, Holston and Larson went through the city's business directories from this period and there's no record of any business named climax. Lore also states that he used the funds from another good bet at the track to buy American House, but it seems to me that this is probably just an overflow from the other tale or possibly a fictional connection to Boss Tom's later antics. Again, spoilers. Patrons of American House even left money with Jim for safekeeping, so he, his business became a kind of informal bank along with everything else. So he's doing really well and uh, it wasn't long before he bought the business next door in order to expand and all of his siblings moved up to the city to work for him and share in this wealth, including, in 1894, Tom, at age 22. Now before we can begin to cover Tom, there's a little bit more about Jim and the rest of the family that you ought to know. First, Michael, dad, died of a heart attack in 1893. He was 67 at the time. I think this might be part of why Tom moved to KC in 94, because Dad had just died. Mom died in 1902 from heart disease. She was 68 at the time. Brothers Michael and John tended Bar American House, while the sisters Marianne, Josie, Maggie, and Jim's wife, the former widow Mary Klein, um, and again, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name here, Doer, Doer, it's D-O-E-R-R, Um, whom he had married in 1886, they all worked in the restaurant portion of the tavern. So I don't know if they had food in the beginning, or if once they added on, then they added the restaurant. They also performed, quote, other domestic duties, end quote. So, you know, they're all waitresses and maids, basically. And the sisters all continued to work for him, and uh, eventually they all married one of them, I don't remember which one at the moment, moved back to St. Joe after she married. Uh, So then in 1890, he's doing so well that he bought a second saloon at 520 Main Street. And the name for which I never saw listed in my sources, but his brother John managed that one. Do you remember that I said younger siblings like to imitate the older ones? Well, Big Jim completely paved the way for Tom. Jim's first elected position came in 1884 when he was elected as a representative of the 6th Ward aka the Bloody Ward during the city's Democratic convention and this was due in large part to his successful business which had equated prominent social standing. According to the ward map I found, the link to which will be on my website, the 6th Ward is roughly today's Power and Light District and maybe a bit of the Crossroads Art District. Well, he must have been bit by the politics bug or something because in 87, he became a committeeman for the First Ward. Now, the First Ward contained the West Bottoms, the Central Business District, and the area around the Convention Center. So, this is the center of the city's wealth. I know I keep coming back to that idea of West Bottoms equals money equals power, but it's extremely important to remember. Anyway, a committeeman was responsible for a mob primary? I don't feel like this was explained very well it's so I'm not sure entirely what it is. It kind of sounds like it's a form of verbal polling or verbal voting and he counts the votes. Again, I'm sorry it wasn't really clear. Anyway, he kept at it until 92 when he ran for and was elected as alderman of the first ward. So this was a position that he kept until 1910. Uh, And it seems like he was a pretty good guy. He helped people get released from jail as quickly as they could. He helped them get jobs. He gave them coal in the winter and turkey for Christmas dinner. He was your buddy. Speaking of friendship, we have to talk about how politics worked in the early 20th century. I have a quote here from Jim about being a boss, and it's a really good summation. Quote, that's all there is to this boss business, friends. All there is to it is having friends, doing things for people, and then later on they'll do things for you, end quote. But just like today, it's not the average worker at the meatpacking plant or the factory that's making the big bucks. It's the factory owners, like Armour and his buddies. Again, I'm going to make a little plug for the Stockyards episode. I talked about Armour a lot. He was pretty cool. I'd like to learn more someday. No, the lowly worker bees are struggling to pay rent and feed their families because they're largely first-generation, maybe second-generation immigrants and blacks. So, the machine, as a later came to be called under Tom, quid pro quo system. Big Jim and Mr. Tom, they looked out for you. They helped you when you needed it. And in return, they just asked for your loyalty. You know, hey, you want me to vote for this guy on this day? You fed me? No problem. And that was how politics worked back then. And it wasn't just Kansas City, it's all across America. But what TJ's able to later accomplish with it, that's what makes it unique. So Big Jim's Democratic cohort became known as the GOATS. And his main rival, a man named Joseph Shannon, was the leader of a faction known as the Rabbits. I know that sounds kind of strange and random, but uh... Apparently it's, like, custom in America to associate political parties with animals. Uh, yeah, no say. And there are several legends around the origins of each name, which I'm not going to go into, but if you're curious, you can read about them on the Joseph Shannon biographical page at caseypendergast.com, The link to which I will put on my website. As they appear in the story, I'll take a moment to give you a brief bio of some of the other power players during this time. So, our first side character that I'm going to talk about. Mmm. Now that kind of makes it sound like the guy's not important, but he is. But I tried other names like associate and collaborator and none of them sounded right. I just really like the sound of side character. But I don't want you to think they're not important. They're definitely the main character of their own story, but this is about Tom. And so they're side characters in his story. But these guys are not red shirts, okay? They are important. Anyway, so our first side character is going to be Joseph, and I'm not counting Big Jim as a side character because he's much more of a prologue. Anyway, Shannon was also the child of Irish immigrants. He was born March 17th in 1867 in St. Louis. His family moved to Kansas City after his father's death while he was still a boy. And like Tom, he also followed an older brother into politics. The important thing here is that he was a boss for the Democrats in the Ninth Ward, just like Jim was a boss for the 1st Ward. And even though they're rivals, they work together once in a while. Hmm, interesting. Now wouldn't that be unique in today's politics? Too soon? Little bit. Also way too real. Getting back to the story. In 1900, they came to an agreement known as the 50-50 Rule. In order to prevent the divide of the Democratic Party which would have allowed Republicans leverage in city politics. Again, this feels really, really on point for today. They agreed to support one another's candidates in the general election. And if I didn't make this clear before, both of these men were low-level political hierarchy and they used their base to support higher-up candidates. That's how being a boss worked. Anyway, they were supporting each other's candidates in the general election So when Joe Schmoe or John Smith or whoever won, they would spread the patronage, you know, the wealth, uh, the other political positions amongst each faction equally. Sounds great in theory, right? Well, no, they still try to cheat each other, like all the time, but it's the thought that counts, right? A reporter in the Kansas City Journal in 1911 said they respected one another politically, but they were never personal friends, and it sounds like there was really just too much animosity there for them to ever be friends. Okay, guess what? We are finally swinging back around to Tommy Boy. But he's 20 now, so I guess that's really the last time I can call him Tommy. TJ, as I said earlier, moved to KC in 1894, and he began working for Big Jim at his saloons. Remember, he owns more than one. Uh, He was a bartender and sometimes a bouncer. He also worked side gigs around town. But he jumped into politics almost immediately. His first role was as the deputy constable, uh, that's basically a bailiff, you know, in the movies of the guy that says, All rise. That's the bailiff. And um, he did that in the court of the first ward. In 86, he became deputy marshal of Jackson County Court. And soon after, he became a precinct captain in the first ward. So a captain was also known as a ward healer. And they were responsible for gathering voters on election day. TJ was really, really good at this. He gathered all the homeless. And to borrow the phrase, ladies of questionable affection. And he took them to the polling stations. He made sure that his people were in line way before the booths even opened so that his opponent's people would look at this long line and be like, nah, I ain't got time for this and leave. But, you know, he did provide chairs for his people to sit in while they were waiting. It was totally a ploy, but still considerate. Other less legal tricks included counting ballots twice, and filling out sheets for people who didn't even exist. These jobs were all provided courtesy of his brother. What I see, and other historians may disagree, I can see where they would, but what I see is that the first position he got on his own was superintendent of the streets. He was appointed to this position by Mayor James Reed. He is the second side character of our show. Reed was born November 6th in 1861. He attended college and then law school, moved to Kansas City and practiced law. From the sound of it, he and Big Jim and Tom were friends. Uh, They helped him get elected to mayor in 1900. And yes, that's the same year as the 50-50 rule. In return, Reed gave Tom the opportunity to stretch his political legs farther by appointing him to this position as superintendent. Reed did so much more, he became a national figure. And his wife is super famous. Many of you might know her better than him, actually, Nellie Dawn. I know, it's very cool. We're going to talk about that dynamic duo in a future episode. Back to Tom. According to my sources, he took the job of superintendent very seriously, and it provided him with an excellent learning experience. He didn't have much of a budget, but he did his best. According to Holston and Larson, quote, He came to see the possibilities for enrichment from lucrative contracts for street paving and repair, On the other hand, he saw that the public paid more attention to the condition of the streets than to what was going on behind closed doors at City Hall, end quote. Sorry, my dog is sneezing at me. Uh, That makes sense, right? There's still a lot of that today, I think. A lot of people care more. I mean, I certainly put more stock in actions than words. Um, So he has a budget, limited as it may be, but he does have a budget and he has all these projects that need to be done. People need jobs, he provides the jobs, he gives them some income and a way to care for his family, they grow to trust him. There you go, more people are now a part of his coalition of goats. (laughs) Again, it's weird that they're known as the goats. Now, I failed to mention before that this was a two-year term, and at the end of his two years, Reed appointed him for another two. However, Tom resigned after only a few months into his second term in order to run for county marshal. He won, of course. As Marshal, he continued his earlier experiences in the justice system. He supervised the county's prisons, served warrants, and assisted in the transportation of prisoners. There's even a story of him delivering Christmas turkeys to those in the county jail in 1903. Unfortunately, he only served this position for the two years. Um, And then when he ran for office again, he lost. And he kept running for office and he kept losing. So in 1908, he went back to being as superintendent of the streets. Kind of a political demotion from Marshall, but don't worry. TJ did not let that slow down his political aspirations in the least. Now that is going to be the end of our story for today. I know we didn't talk about him as boss of the city. Uh, We hardly talked about him at all, but it's a really good stopping place. So we will talk more about Tommy Boy's empire in the next episode. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend, rate, and review me on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The more people who give me a good rating, the easier it'll be for others to find me. As of the recording of this episode, Homegrown KC has had 970 downloads, which is awesome. Thank you. But I had 900 at the start of the last episode, and I was really hoping... That I would get a thousand. And it hasn't happened yet. So please, please listen to this episode. Spread the word. And help me break a thousand downloads. You guys don't understand how incredibly thrilling it is to reach these, these um, benchmarks. Like when I hit 500, I was like, oh my gosh. And then 600. And then 700. So like a thousand is just going to be so thrilling. I will be so pumped. If you want to support the show, you can do so by subscribing to Patreon.com slash HomegrownKC or RedCircle.com slash HomegrownKC for $5 a month. And come on, that's not much. A cup of coffee costs more. You will receive access to exclusive bonus episodes featuring other local historians. Here's how it works. You sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show. You'll be charged that day and then afterwards you'll be charged on the first of every month everything that you guys give goes back into the show pays for my gas getting back and forth while i do research at the museum or at the library speaking of library thankfully they eliminated late fines i think i mentioned that once before because if they hadn't i would have owed them a couple hundred dollars in late fines by now um so far i've stuck i've spoken with chuck haddock of the mar sound archives dr karma from the black archives of mid-america And in my latest Patreon episode, I spoke to local historian Pat O'Neill. I wanted to speak with Pat about the history of Irish immigrants in Kansas City in honor of St. Patrick's Day, but I didn't realize until we were in the middle of a recording how on point it would be because we spoke about Pendergast too. He was great. They were all great. So knowledgeable and so passionate about their work. Um... You guys are going to love these episodes, so make sure you subscribe. Again, that's patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Also, I'll give you a shout-out here on the show if you support me. So, Mike, Bjorn, and Linda, thank you for your support. You guys are the best. I love you. Don't forget to visit my website, homegrownkc.wordpress.com. And follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I'll post... Pictures, um, announcements, and other messages, updates on those sites. If you have any questions, comments, um, or suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you goes out to my very talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for creating my logo. To the dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show. And last but not least, to local libraries, which allowed me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening!
1: Seem to shake this feeling, and I can seem to get you off my mind.